Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. Glad you're here this morning. Several people asked me uh, two Sundays ago, as I talked about this week, going to cover nine verses of Scripture if they needed to pack a snack for today. Uh, Probably not, but who knows? Uh, Maybe we just have lunch together or something. But we are going to look at nine verses. I'm not sure we will exhaust those nine verses today. I'm not sure we'll be finished with them. But we're going to take them and look at them and, and, and try to glean just exactly what the Apostle Paul wants us to see here. This is such a powerful, powerful passage. And I don't want us to miss anything in it. I, I stole the title. The title is Five Unanswerable Questions. And I, I stole that title or borrowed that title, I guess I should say, from, from John Stott. John Stott, the great Anglican theologian and pastor who pastored All Souls Church in London for many, many years, wrote a little book about this thick, very tiny thing, entitled Man Made New. And in Man Made New, it was just on Romans 5 through 8. And and his, his premise of that book was, as the title would give away, that what God has done and is doing in salvation and sanctification and ultimately glorification is he's making man new, making woman new. He's recreating you because of his work in your life. He's making you into something that you totally never were and never could be on your own. God is making you new. And and so that's where he came down as he got to the end of that book. He said, these are five unanswerable questions. Now, he didn't say five unanswered questions. And the reality is they're only unanswerable if you try to answer them apart from Jesus Christ and apart from the grace of God. They're only unanswerable if we try to do them in our own strength and in our own wisdom, by our own reasoning and thinking. When we see what God has to say about them, we understand that they are immensely answered by the grace of God and by the power of God in all of His work in us. God is making us new. So hear these words as I read, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? That's not one of the five questions. I'll tell you why in a minute. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us, how will He not now also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, and he quotes here uh, Psalm 44, 22. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. When you hear the Apostle Paul say in that very first question that's not one of the five questions, what shall we say to these things then? Then, 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 what, what sh- then shall we say to these things? The Apostle Paul is reflecting back on everything he said, primarily in the whole book of Romans, chapters 1 through 8, but especially beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8 and moving down to this point. If you remember, first, uh, verse 1 started out with this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he builds this whole case of the justification and the work of God in a person's life and how because of what God is doing, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. There never will be any condemnation if you are in Christ. And then he comes to this question, what then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? Have you ever climbed or walked or rode a car, it's more my speed, to the top of a mountain. And you got to the top of the mountain, it's a high mountain, and, and you look back from where you came and you see all the beauty of the valley, all the glory of God's creation behind you, and maybe you're high enough that you even see some clouds floating around, and it's just an absolutely breathtaking and beautiful experience. And you look at that and you, you would almost have to say, wow, what can I say about that? That's kind of, what, kind of what Paul has done here. He's kind of reached the pinnacle of his argument. He's reached the pinnacle of the glory of God in the sacrifice and the glory of Christ. And he comes to that and he says, well, what do we say about this? How do we express this? How do we point to this in people's lives? How can we see it in our worship? How can we really come to worship this God who has done this mighty and great work in our lives? And so he launches into these five questions. And at the second half of, of, of verse 31, he says this. It's quite simply, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I tell you this, if you leave off the first half of that question and you just look at the second half for a minute and Paul just says, who can be against us? We can answer that readily, can't we? We can say there are many people against us. In, in theology, it talks about regularly that the world, the flesh, and the devil are all against us. The world hates Christianity. The world system hates that God has said and spends its whole time rebelling against God's word, rebelling against God's truth, and says, we want to do it our way. And if you stand with God's truth and say, I will stand here and I shall not be moved and I'll not be shaken from this truth, the world will hate you. Jesus said that in John 15. He said, if they love me, they'll love you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. You're not better than your teacher. You're not better than your master. You're going to experience the same type things that I did. The world hates God. That's a given throughout all of Scripture. So if we just say, who's against us? We can say very very clearly, well, the world is against us. The the second thing we see is against us is the devil, Satan himself. Uh, Pastor Todd read a passage that we'll come back to in a minute. I don't want to get there now, but... But you saw the devil standing in in Zechariah's vision, standing next to Joshua, the high priest, preparing to give sacrifices. And the devil brings accusation against Joshua. And we know that uh, Satan is giving accusation against us. 
Peter says that Satan is like a roaring lion, prowling about, seeking whom he, whom he may devour. He's not worried about devouring the world and those in the world. He's concerned with devouring those who are the people of God, Christ's disciples, God's family. And so we know that the world is against us. We know that Satan is against us, and he would seek to destroy us, and he would love to see us fall into egregious sin and be an embarrassment to the gospel. We know that Satan is against us, and, and he stands against us strongly. But not just the world and the devil, but the Scripture tells us that the flesh does war within us. In Romans chapter 7, we saw the Apostle Paul talking about that. Sin still dwells in me. I still dwell in this fleshly body, and flesh fights against me. So it's not just external enemies that are coming against us, but there's also an internal enemy coming against us, accusing us, saying, who do you think you are, and why do you think you deserve to know this no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus? How do you deal with that? You've got all sorts of people against us. So it's answerable. If you leave off the first half of that question, the rhetorical anticipation that the Apostle Paul has there, and he does this all through Romans, he'll do a lot in Romans 9. The rhetorical anticipation is this, nobody, nothing, who can be against us if God, and the if there's a conditional class sentence and it's since God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on our side, who can be against us? Oh, they will come against us, but they have no power, they have no authority, because we stand in Christ Jesus. We know that the world and the devil and even the flesh has this antinomy against God. It has God-rebelling ways. It does not want to be told what to do or how to do it or when to do it. It wants to do it on its own. But when Christ is our Lord, when Christ rules in our life, when we are in Christ, as Paul over and over and over uses the terminology to talk about what it means to be a Christian, when we are in Christ, no one can stand against us. Paul says, what shall we say to these things about God's working all things together for good, about God saying there's no condemnation if you're in Christ, uh, by saying that salvation stretches as you did in 29 and 30 from eternity past to eternity future, and God is involved in all of it. You can't save yourself. It's all an act of God. We sang about it this morning over and over that it is God's work. What can we say to these things? We can say to these things that no matter who comes against us, no matter what stands against us, if we are in Christ, they cannot be against us. We just can't do it because he's our authority, he's our power. So the first one, if, God's forget, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, a lot can be against us, but they'll have no rule at all. Then he says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, Jesus, God the Father, sent his son in the world, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, will never perish, but have eternal life. That's a glorious promise. Whoever believes in the name of the Son has eternal life. So he who did not spare his own Son, sent him to the cross, gave him up for us all. Listen to the second question. How will he not now also with him graciously give us all things? 
Someone might argue, but yes, but what if God changes his mind? What if God decides, well, I'm tired of what, I'm tired of having to put up with you. I'm tired of you just failing over and over and over again. I'm just, I'm fed up with it. I'm going to recall all of this that I've given to you. Paul says, wait a minute. He has given you the greatest of all possible gifts. He has given you his own son, Jesus Christ. That's the greatest gift there could ever be. And in that son, you find security and hope. He said, listen, these five questions are are unanswerable if they're grounded in anything but undeniable truth that God has given in his word. See, if he gave you his son, why would we ever doubt that he would change his mind and not in the scope of things give us all things? Graciously give us all things. Now, it might be easy to say, well, some of the things I want, he hasn't given me. And maybe the things you want are not the things that he would see as best for your life. I forget who said it years ago. I think it had been Tim Keller that said, you know, God answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. Pretty solid understanding of God's graciousness. He doesn't give us what we think we want. He gives us what we know that we would want if we knew what he knew. If we had his wisdom and his insight and his knowledge of what's going to happen, he, we would rejoice. We would want what he's giving us. And he gives us all things that are necessary for life and for sanctification and for glorification and for worship and for his glory. I mean, he gives us all things. Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians chapter 1, we have been blessed with all blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. There is no blessing, there is no thing that goes ungiven to God's people. I mean, you're going to have a bank account with seven figures. Doesn't mean you're going to drive a fancy car. Doesn't mean you're going to live in a mansion. Doesn't mean you're going to have everything you might want on this earth. But it means that everything that you need, everything that is necessary for your godliness and for your living in this world is given to you in Christ Jesus. He who gave his own son, how will he not now graciously give us all things? Simple question, simple answer from God's perspective. He will. Third question. Who is to condemn? Or is one version, excuse me, not who, that's the fourth question. I'm skipping ahead in my text. Number three, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, in this question, Paul moves into the legal realm. He moves into the legal realm of the courtroom. Who's going to bring a charge? Who's going to bring an accusation against God's elect? Well, we go back again to the same thing we've been talking about, that there are a lot of people who will bring charges against us, the world, the flesh, the devil. But, but 
Who could do that, Paul queries, when we recognize the, 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 the hope of that is not who shall bring a charge against God's elect, because it is God who justifies. It's God who justifies. When, when you stand in the great courtroom of cosmic justice, the great courtroom where God is the supreme judge, greater than the Supreme Court, greater than any jury that can ever be impaneled, even if it's the Senate of the United States. When you stand in God's presence, in God's courtroom, and, and Satan or someone starts trying to bring a charge against you and say, well, do you know he did this? Do you know he did that? Paul says, doesn't matter. Because God's already justified. God's already declared you in Christ not guilty. He's already imputed to you the righteousness of Christ. That's the beauty of that passage that Pastor Todd read this morning out of Zechariah chapter 3. A lot of times we don't see that. Uh, you know, we, we think about Old Testament prophets, especially the minor prophets like Zechariah, and we say, well, that's just, you know, that was for the Jews back then. It doesn't have a lot for us. Listen, that chapter, that ver those verses that Pastor Todd read, especially verses 1 through, uh, through 5 or 6, are so instructive and so illustrative of what happens in your life and my life that is shown in the life of the high priest of Joshua there. If you, got, if you can, well, don't try to find it. Just listen. Even I have trouble finding Zechariah sometimes when I try to turn to it. That's why I have a marker here so it's there. Listen again to those words. I wasn't going to read them again, but I think it's important to hear them. Then he showed me, that is Zechariah speaking, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing there at his right hand to accuse him. Here's Joshua, the high priest, about to go in to offer sacrifices, obviously, for the people of God. To go in and bring these sacrifices that there might be atonement for their sin made. And, and he's getting ready to go in. And, and Satan is standing there and he says basically, Who are you to offer sacrifices to God? You got dirty clothes on. Your rags, your, your clothes are tattered. You look like a mess. Now understand, our clothes may look really good this morning. But if we're not in Christ, our garments are really dirty and tattered. They're frayed. They're, they're, they're falling apart. And, and, and Satan says, you have no right to go in. You're, you're, you have no basis to go. And then the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It is not this, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And the word brand there is really like a branch that is pulled out of the fire. Yes, it's smoldering. Yes, it's hot. Yes, it's, it's problematic, but it's been purified by the fire. Is not this a brand or a branch that's been pulled from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove these filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken, taken your iniquity away from you. What is symbolic of the iniquity? It is the filthy garments. I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. vestments. And I said, 
let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. I mean, it's a picture of what took place on the cross of Christ and what takes place when God justifies us in His court of law because of the work of Christ and the grace of Christ upon our life. We are literally clothed in new garments. You know the song the choir sings sometime, clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone? That's where we are. We're like Joshua there. Our filthy garments have been taken away. Our dirty, ragged, tattered garments have been stripped from us, and we have now been clothed in royal vestments. We have been clothed with a clean turban on our head. We have been made righteous in God's eyes by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's the picture that we get in the Old Testament, in, in, Zachari in Zachariah. And he goes on to say, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree, because I will send one who will do that work to all my people, not just to a high priest who's standing here getting ready to go in. See, we don't have any high priest anymore, except Jesus himself. We don't have any priest. I'm not a priest. I'm a shepherd. I'm a pastor. I'm just here to feed you and to help lead you. But, but in that day it was the priest. But now we're all priests. We're all priests as Joshua was, standing in the presence of God. And we are clothed, if we are in Christ, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? There'll be a lot of charges made, but none will stick and none will stand because God is the one who justifies. Fourthly, who is to condemn? Who is he that condemns? Who is to condemn? You, you, you can charge all you want and you can try to condemn all you want, but who is to condemn? And Paul says it's Jesus Christ. It's Christ Jesus who is the one who died. That's that sacrifice that brings about the clothing and the righteousness. That's that cross. He is the one who died. He is the one who became the sacrifice, like the high priest was taking a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for the people. But Jesus is the one who became that sacrifice for all his people, once and for all, once for all time, never to have to be repeated again. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. But not only that, Paul says, more than that, who was raised? There's the importance of the resurrection. Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 15 extensively. That the resurrection is the very heart of the gospel. If Christ be not raised, then will not be raised. If Christ be not raised, then our gospel is in vain and our faith is in vain and there's absolutely nothing to be here for. We ought to be out fishing or doing something this morning rather than this, or sleeping rather than being here if Christ is not raised. 
Paul says he is raised. He died as a sacrificial death, but had he stayed in that grave, there would have been no affirmation that that death was effective and effectual in the lives of all who believe. But he came forth from the grave, raised from the dead, to say everything Jesus said about the efficacy of his cross is absolutely true, absolutely secured. Verifies everything he did, everything he said. It shows that he is the one who came from God. Who can condemn? Jesus died to bring about an end to condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was raised to prove that that is true. Not only that, Paul says, he is seated. He is seated at the right hand of God. Actually, then you see it here, he does in other places. But he is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I want you to get this picture. I want you to see this in the eyes of your spirit. Not with these physical eyes, but I want you to think about this. Jesus died a sacrificial death. Thanks be to God. Jesus raised from the dead to confirm everything that he said about that sacrificial death, to verify it, to certify it. Praise be to God. But that same Jesus who died and was raised, after 40 days, he ascended into heaven. 500 people saw him. 500 people standing there saw him lifted up into heaven, bodily carried into heaven, And there he is now. Writer of Hebrews says, seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul just says here, at the right hand of the Father. And he is interceding. He is praying. He is calling our names. And praying for everything that comes into your life. If you are in Christ, it would seek to try to condemn you, saying, Father, remind them there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remind them that Jesus died for that reason and he was raised to prove that and now he's there with God interceding. Now, somebody, says, somebody asked me this just a few days ago. He said, How, I, just, I can't get in my mind that Jesus is there with a body and, the, and God the Father is spirit and the Holy Spirit is spirit and, and Jesus is there, but there's, there's three persons, but there's one God and, and how does that all fit? I don't know. I have one word for that. You've heard me use it a lot in Romans. Mystery. Can't fully comprehend it. But help me, under, help me believe that which is not meant to be understood. Help me believe the truth that God has revealed, not what I can figure out and reason out in my own mind. Help me believe what cannot be understood. And then the fine, final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, I want you to notice, I had this asked months ago when I preached on just that introductory sermon to, to Romans 18 through 39. I had somebody say, well, you know, the question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes into not a list of, of people, he goes into a list of things. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul personifies those. He says, they're so real, they're like a person coming at you. Persecution and, and tribulation and distress and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. Those are very real. They're not things in the life of the person that's going through them. It, it's personified. It's like somebody coming at me with that. And in reality, there's something, somebody, a spiritual power behind it that's causing it. And so that's the one who's trying to separate you with these things. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or stress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then he kind of extends that question by saying, shall it be these things that do it? What, who shall separate us? Paul says none of that can. The love of Christ is secured for the believer. The love of Christ is something that's a reality in your life every single day. He loves us. We love Him because He first loved us. We submit to Him because He called us by His Spirit. We are, we, we are, we are who we are, not because we're so great and it's what we've done. We are who we are because of the work He has done in our life by His grace and for His glory. So this final, if you will, all-embracing, climatic question kind of zeroes in to say, listen, there's a lot of things that will try to separate you from the love of Christ. Now, some people want to read that and say, well, tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger or sword will be protected from those because we're in Christ. That's why they can't separate us because we'll be protected from that. I think Paul wants to be sure that we don't think that because then he immediately quotes Psalm 44, 22, where he says, For your sake, for God's sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is saying, listen, those things will not separate God's love from you or Christ's love from you. Those things will not pull it away, as tough as they may be. But he also wants to make sure that we understand that Christians are not exempt from those things. And just because they come, it does not mean that God has quit loving us. Just because we have famine or distress or, or persecution or whatever, it doesn't mean that God has said, I don't love you anymore. I'm going to let these things just really bowl you over. No. Those are not signs that God doesn't love you. Those are signs that God does love you, and your love is being returned, and the world, the flesh, and the devil can't stand the fact that you love Him, that His love is permanent upon your life, that you have been forgiven and you have been justified and you have been declared clothed in the righteousness of His own Son, Jesus Christ, you who knew no righteousness, because He who knew no sin became sin so that you and me who know no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God. I won't shout, but I want to. That almost blew my voice out singing, uh, The Lord is my salvation, and, and I'll not be shaken a while ago. I got so into it, I hurt myself. So I know if I shout, I'm done. 
But that's shout-worthy, folks. That's shout-worthy if you really know it. Not just know about it. Not just know a doctrine or two. Not just say, well, you know, I'm, I believe all that's true. But do you believe it's true because you know Him? Stott writes this about that last question. He said, with this fifth and last question, Paul himself does what we have been trying to do with all his other four questions. He looks around for a possible answer. He brings forward all the adversaries he can think of which might be thought to separate us from Christ's love. We may have to endure tribulation, distress, and persecution, that is, the pressures of an ungodly world. We may have to undergo famine and nakedness, that is, the, the lack of adequate food and clothing, which since Jesus promised them to the Heavenly Father's children, might seem to be evidence that God does not care. We may be, even have to experience peril and sword, that is, the danger of death or even actual death. By the malice of men, martyrdom, the ultimate test of our faith. It is a real test, too, because the Scripture warns us in 44:22 that God's people are for His sake being killed all the day long. Did you read last week about the pastor who was captured by Boca Raton? Uh, not Boca Raton, that's the Florida town. Boca what? Harlem. Yeah, okay, yeah. I had them in Florida. They were not in Florida. They were somewhere else. But they captured him, a Christian pastor. We're going to make an example of him. And so he, they made a videotape, a, a, a propaganda videotape with him. They put him in front of a camera, and they, they wanted to get him to renounce his faith in Christ and, and speak to the whole uh, Muslim world about that and, and they would be able to use him for propaganda denying Christ and in that video he prays the grace of God he prays the Lord Jesus Christ he spoke of nothing but what God has done to give him salvation in Christ and he blessed the name of God and they beheaded him eight people every day eight Christians every day Today, somewhere in the world, eight Christians will die for refusing to renounce Christ. Hundreds of church buildings will be burned to the ground today, in a day, because they refuse to give in to, to pressure from either government in China or for refuse to give in to pressure in a, in a world that hates Christ and hates Christianity. They'll be burned to the ground, be destroyed. They're being led to the slaughter every day. You're, you're not, I realize that. and I, I'm kind of glad we're not. I don't want that. I'd be, I'd be crazy to want that. But I'd be sinful to not care about those brothers and sisters around the world who are and recognize that it's not out of the question that it might be a reality here. One day, sometime, for some of us. So 
Why are they being led to the slaughter? Why are they being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, killed all the day long? For the sake of Christ. Stott finished by saying, That is, they are continuously being exposed to the risk of death like sheep for the slaughter. They, there are adversaries indeed. There are, they are real sufferings, painful and perilous and hard to bear. But can they separate us from the love of Christ? No. Can they separate us from the love of Christ? Do they confirm that Christ really doesn't love us? No. Can they separate us from the grace that God has given us by His Spirit in Jesus Christ? Can they separate us from that? No. Emphatically, no. you didn't save yourself he does he doesn't you you don't do the work of continuing he does it we sing that great old hymn that's been modernized a little bit that we're going to sing in a minute as our hymn of commitment he will hold me fast because he will and not only will he because he can and not only because he can, because he does. I can't think of anything else to say or I keep going. Be thou my vision. Only your mercy, only your grace, only your spirit can bring us to faith. The Lord is my salvation. And, and, it, and where I blew my voice out was singing, Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. Our God is three in one. Trinitarian, powerful, glorious. I'll not be shaken. By the way, we didn't get Psalm 62 on that. Remember that Psalm 62. I'll not be shaken. Why? Because I'm so strong? No, I'll not be shaken because He's so strong. And He is my rock. He is my foundation. He is my security. And I stand in His grace. Pray with me, would you?